you take your copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm one, uh, Psalm nineteen, to the choir master, a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words where voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has sent a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and, like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hid from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. More, however, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, indeed, as we have just sung, how great you are. We acknowledge that we see in all that you have created and all the beauty that you have made for us, that all of creation declares your glory. But even more than that, we see your plan of salvation for us revealed in your word through Christ, who was sent from your side to become a man and to live the perfect life that we could never live, to die the death that we deserved, and to rise from the grave in victory. For your creation, for your plan of redemption, for all of these things, we turn to you in praise and glory this morning. As we turn to your word here in Psalm 119, May our hearts be driven to glorify you for who you are and for all that you have done for us. I pray that you would be with me as I preach the word this morning. May I speak boldly the truths that you have passed down to us and chosen to reveal to us in your word. We are so thankful for your glorious revelation of yourself to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's such a joy to be here with you this morning to open God's Word together. The passage before us, Psalm 119, is a very familiar passage. But today as we meditate on it, I pray that our understanding of who God is and what He has done for us is made clear and drives us to worship Him together as His people. I think we can all agree that we live 
in a very beautiful place. Stunning views of the mountains, the way the sun sets over them, uh, the vibrant forests so full of life and light, the ever-changing sky and clouds that pass over our head each and every day. The Lord has blessed us in so many ways with this beautiful planet that he created for our enjoyment. Think of the other things he's created, the beautiful, unique, individual faces of everyone in this room. One of the things I love about this church is all the newborn babies. How much awe and wonder do we have when we look into the eyes of a newborn child? We should be in awe and in wonder of God's spectacular creation. As we've just sung, indeed, God, how great you are. However, I know that I don't often slow down enough to really appreciate the incredible gifts that he has given to us. Do we take creation for granted? Are we driven to praise by the delightful things that we see around us? Our underappreciation of God's gifts in creation is exemplified in our culture of dissatisfaction and ingratitude. There are so many things in our busy lives that fight and claw for our attention. And I think we also often miss the simple but truly magnificent beauty all around us. This is comically made evident uh, in an internet page that my daughters uh, love to share with me called Subpar Parks. It is a th thing that a woman named Amber share. She goes on the internet and finds actual reviews from our country's national parks where people give the national park a one-star rating and include their review. And she puts it together with beautiful pictures of the park, and it's, it's funny. But I want to share a couple of those with you just to kind of illustrate this point of how we take for granted God's creation. I'll read just a few. Yellowstone National Park. Save yourself money and boil some water at home. One star. Grand Tetons. All I saw was a lake, mountains, and some trees. One star. Denali in Alaska, the tallest mountains in North America. Mountains not nearly tall enough. One star. Uh, he must be from Nepal, I don't know. All right, Black Canyon of the Gunnison, my daughter Eliana's favorite national park. Just not impressive. One star. Yosemite. Trees block the view, and there are too many gray rocks. One star. Rocky Mountain National Park here in our own backyard. Very unimpressed. One star. And finally, the Grand Canyon. A hole. A very, very large hole. One star. We can laugh at these ridiculous reviews. But if we examine our hearts and actions, do we give God the glory and honor and praise that he deserves for all that is given to us? First in creation, but ultimately in Christ revealed in his word. Those are the two main points that we're going to look at from our text this morning. First, creation declares the glory of God. And second, the word declares the necessary knowledge of God. First thing that I want us to look at from this text before us is the power and glory of our God displayed in creation. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
Just earlier this year, I was walking up in the mountains where we meet for tenant. Uh, one of the students, two of his little children were there, and it was the first time in their lives they'd been out of the city and seen a night sky without the inhibition or without the lights of the city blocking the view of the stars. And they were just in awe of what they saw. They had never seen so many stars and planets. Looking at the vastness of the night sky, we can see that the majesty around us truly does proclaim the handiwork of our God. Even beyond what we can see with our eyes, with the technology of telescopes and satellites, we now know so much more about our universe. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, my girls and I were watching some videos on the internet about how our Earth fits into the solar system, and how the solar system fits into the Milky Way galaxy, and how the Milky Way galaxy is just a tiny part of many, many galaxies that make up the universe. The vastness of what God has created is mind-boggling, and it all declares the glory of God. Not only does all of space declare the glory of God, but we see in verse 2, also all of time does as well. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. We are constantly reminded of the glory of God. Every time the sun rises in the morning, every time that it sets, every night that we gaze upon the moon and the stars, we are reminded of God's glory. Zach preached a few weeks ago from Psalm 78 about the importance of remembering what God has done for us. Even in creation, God has ordained the days and the nights to help us remember him in all of his glory. Not just sometimes, not every once in a while, not every couple hundred years when something special happens like a solar eclipse where we are, but every single day and every single night. Creation is reminding us of the glory of God. Beyond just space and time, we see that the glory of God is infinite. It cannot be measured or fully described. Picking up again in verse 3. All of these things in creation are speaking, but there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. All of creation is pictured here as speaking to proclaim the glory of God, but is more infinite than can ever be told. Then David continues by personifying the sun, picking up at the end of verse 4. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. It's interesting here that David personifies or gives human characteristics to the sun, but he does not deify it, make it a god. In the ancient Near East, around where Israel was when David was writing this, the surrounding nations worshipped and served some form of a sun god. Many of them, the sun was the chief of their gods. But David here is saying that the sun is not a God, but it is like a person pointing us to the one true God. Think about that this week as you watch the sun move across the sky 
running its course with joy. I love that, I love that phrase, picturing the sun going across the sky. Running its course with joy. When the sun is in the sky, it's not just there to give us light or to give us heat, but it's there to point us to the glory of the God who created it. With these hot temperatures these last couple of weeks, and last week my family and I were in Orlando for a make-a-wish trip to Disney World with Nyla, and we really truly felt that no one could escape the heat of the sun. And when in the heat of the sun, I'll have to admit, I wasn't necessarily reminded that it was telling me to glorify God and I couldn't escape his glory. It was more reminding me that I needed to hydrate and put on sunscreen. But ultimately, that is what the heat of the sun should remind us is of our God, that he is omnipresent. We cannot escape him, just like we cannot escape the heat of the sun in Orlando in mid-August. We cannot escape the glory of God. All that you see around you, all of creation and all the things that have been made are there to remind you of God's eternal power and his divine nature. Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. I want to look at verses 18 through 20. Romans 1, 18 through 20. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth is it that they suppress? For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This is what we call general revelation. The fact that everyone on this planet is without excuse because it is clear from creation that God is God and he is eternally powerful. Kids, this week many of you are probably starting up school again and some of you in your science classes may hear about evolution and people denying that God created everything. It's not because they don't know about God. They do know about God, but they are rejecting him as God. Claiming to be wise, they have become fools. To not become foolish like them, is it enough for us to simply recognize God's eternal power and divine nature displayed in the work of creation? We know that it is not. One more subpar park review. Zion National Park in southwest Utah. Here's what the reviewer said. The scenery is distant and impersonal. One star. Scenery is distant and impersonal. As ridiculous as some of these reviews have been, this one's actually quite profound. In an exceptionally gorgeous place like Zion, we can see God's eternal power and divine nature. But it truly is distant and impersonal. It doesn't tell us how to know God. 
That is why I am so glad that Psalm 19 doesn't stop at verse 6 with seeing an impersonal and distant God in creation, but it turns to seeing the truth about God revealed in his word. Flip back in your Bibles to Psalm 19. Praise God that we're not left with only general revelation about creation, but we have the special revelation given to us in his word of his plan to reconcile the world to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. The very first paragraph of the 1689 London Baptist Confession, when talking about the word of God, puts it like this. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will which is necessary unto salvation. This brings us to our second point. The, world, the word declares the necessary knowledge of God. The word declares the necessary knowledge of God. As we dive into these next verses, I want to look at three aspects of the word of God. As my girls can tell you, I love alliteration to help me remember my points because my memory is terrible. Um, in the rest of the verses in Psalm 19, we will explore Three things about the Word of God. First, the Word of God is superior. Second, the Word of God is satisfying. And third, the Word of God is sufficient. So, First, the Word of God is superior. We have been talking about creation and how great it is. But look at me. Look with me at how David describes the law of the Lord, starting in verse 7. In the first six verses, it's almost just a list of facts about creation. He doesn't include deep descriptions or flowery adjectives. He simply states what God has done in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. He doesn't really give us any description about the quality of the heavens or the sky or the sun. He doesn't say the perfect sky or the pure heavens. But look at verses 7 through 9. Look at the first part of each line, how David talks about the scriptures, about the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Could David even say these things about creation? Can we say these things about any created thing in our lives? I love Leanna and my girls more than anything else in this world, but can I say that they are perfect, right, pure, true, and righteous altogether? Can we say that about a mountain or a tree or the sky or the sun? Of course not. We can't say these things about anything in creation or any person in our lives or any other book that we read. But with David, we can rightly say that the word of God is perfect, sure, 
right, pure, clean, true, and righteous altogether. I want you guys to pause and just think with me just how significant it is that we have the word of God. We have his written words in our hands that we have access to. Are we filled with gratitude that we have access to his word? Our access to the word of God in our language that we are able to read and understand for ourselves is really quite unique in the scope of history and even in the scope of geography around the world today. That's why we support Bible Translation Fellowship and Kyle and Hannah Davis in South Africa. There are still languages that don't have the Bible translated in their own language. We are so blessed to have the word in our language. Even more than that, considering when David wrote this psalm, what was he talking about? He was just talking about the Old Testament, the laws, what he had prior to writing it. We have even more than what David had when he wrote this. I want you to think in your mind about the comments you may have made or the thoughts that you may have had about the beautiful creation that we see here in Colorado. Our church has gone on a backpacking trip and a camping trip this summer. In a couple weeks, we're going to be up at our church retreat in the mountains and see the beautiful creation around us. Think of all the things you say about creation and how you rightly get excited about what God has created. How does that compare to the comments we have made or the thoughts that we have about the fact that we have before us now in our hands the word of the living God? As David shows us here, it truly is superior to what is revealed to us in creation. I pray that we never lose sight of what an incredible gift it is that we have such access to this word. Because we have the word, we aren't stuck with a distant and impersonal view of God. We have his own words about himself and his son and his spirit that are perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true and righteous altogether. Thanks be to our great God. We see that God's word is superior to the creation around us. But do we act like it is superior? Think about that this week. What in your life is an idol that you place above God and above his word in your life, with your time, with your commitments. What do you place above God and his word? We've looked together at how the special revelation in the word of God is superior to the general revelation of creation. Now let's continue in our passage to be reminded how the word of God satisfies us. That is our next sub-point as we look at how the word of God declares the necessary knowledge of God. The Word of God is satisfying. When we talked about the Word of God being superior, we looked at the first part of each line in verses 7 through 9 about what the Word is, but now I want to look at the second part of each line and see how the Word satisfies 
us. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Can a mountain or a tree or a sunset revive your soul? Can any other person in this world revive your soul? No. But these scriptures reveal the perfect plan of God to truly and eternally revive your soul in Christ. Again in verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I don't know about you, but I feel incredibly grateful to have had the chance to learn from so many men in the church this summer while Ryan's been on sabbatical. Addison and Brandon and Chuck and Jacob and Robert and Zach. Not to mention that we get to regularly sit under Ryan's teaching. I don't think you guys realize how unique it is to be able to learn from so many incredibly smart and gifted people in this church. But it can also make us feel simple sometimes. I, I am intimidated by their intelligence and their insights. Sometimes I feel like I'm getting up here, I don't know what to say. But I think we can all feel simple at some times. I think all of them probably feel pretty simple. But the word of God can make us wise. If we tether ourselves to the sure testimony of the Lord, though simple, we will be made wise. William Tyndale, the namesake of the Benjamins' son, had a passion for translating the scriptures. He lived in the early 1500s, and he had a passion for translating the word of God into the common language of the people so they could read it and understand it themselves. One day, William Tyndale was in an argument that has been recorded for us. He was talking to, it just says a learned man, but was probably a priest or someone in the church. And he was kind of arguing back and forth with him about the importance of the common person being able to have the scriptures versus just relying on the Pope. And William Tyndale, speaking to this learned man, says this, If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of Scripture than thou dost. I love that. That was William Tyndale's passion. That's what he lived and what he died for and many others after him. So we have access to the word. Though none of us are small children pushing the plow, it gets to this simpleness that we all feel. But we can be made wise because we have access to this word. Verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The word of God can cause our weak and discouraged hearts to rejoice. I can't even begin to tell you how many times in the last several years I've not felt like rejoicing. But through time in the word, our hearts can be driven to rejoice even in the midst of great suffering. When, not if we suffer, when suffering comes in this life, and often stays in this life longer than we want it to, we need not pout or feel sorry for ourselves, but turn to the right precepts of the Lord to be reminded 
of all the unchanging reasons we have for rejoicing. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. We see the world around us is so darkened and lost and confused. Our world celebrates what is wrong and evil while it denies and rejects what is true. May our eyes be enlightened by what the Spirit shows us in the pure commandments of the Lord. Verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. What we learn of the Lord from his word endures forever. This is a sure and steady foundation that will never change. Other things that we learn can change. Kids, as you go back to school, you may learn things that change. How many of you growing up learned that Pluto was the ninth planet? Now somehow that has changed and poor Pluto has been demoted. Human knowledge changes, but not so with the word of God. Everything that you learn in this book about God and his will is a sure foundation that will never change. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In our culture, there's so much doubt and ambiguity. No one agrees on the truth. And we all want to establish and define our own truths. But we don't determine truth. God's law is the standard of truth. And it is righteous altogether. In comparison to the perverted half-truths that this world tries to sell us. We have seen so many ways that the word satisfies us. Let's keep going with verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. The truths that you mine and harvest out of God's word are far more precious than any money that you might earn. And they are far more satisfying than any food you might consume. Let's pause here to pull out some practical applications from these two illustrations that David uses. These phrases are so familiar to us, I think we can kind of sometimes just brush right past them. But I want us to slow down and really draw out some of the implications of these two illustrations. So first, more to be desired than gold. How do we show that we desire money? We desire financial success. We think about it. We worry about it. Do we have enough money? We go to school and go to college to study so that we can earn more money. And then after school, we work really hard to earn that money. We save it. We invest it. We accumulate wealth. We budget and we plan how to use our money wisely. How can we apply these things to the way that we interact with the word of God? Very similarly, we need to think about God's word. Meditate on it day and night. Maybe spend some time worrying if you have enough of God's word in your life. I know I worry a whole lot more about if I have enough money than if I have enough of God's word in my life. And then do something about it. Study the word 
not necessarily so you can earn more money. It's not uh, the best financial plan, but we have so many great resources available to us. Pick up and read a book off the book table. Commit to attending and engaging in Sunday school. We're starting up again in about a month. Chuck's super excited about it, and you should be too. Right, Chuck? <laughs> Maybe even go to a good seminary. I could recommend one if you'd like. <laughs> but work at it. Not everything in God's Word is easy to understand. It's going to take some hard and diligent work. But it is so worth it. Save it. Memorize the Word. As much as you try to fill your savings account and accumulate investments and retirement savings, store up rich deposits of God's word in your hearts and in your minds. Budget, plan, think about it. If you struggle with consistency in reading God's word, choose a Bible reading plan and keep working at it. Be faithful. I think I've squeezed enough out of the money illustration, so let's move on to David's next one that he uses. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. How can this illustration of food help us in understanding our consumption of God's word? Honey is sweet. It is desirable. It brings us joy. May that be true of the word of God. I know it's not always that way. We don't always eat the most delicious foods, but there should be time where you truly find great delight in reading God's word. Don't get discouraged if it doesn't feel like that in everything that you read. If it feels like as you've been reading, you're only finding broccoli and never finding the honey. Pray that the Spirit would give you times of true delight in his word, that would become sweet like honey. Again, with this food illustration, we partake of food regularly. If we skip a meal, we start to notice it. If we skip two meals, all of a sudden we start to feel desperate to eat. Partake of the word regularly. Something practical that helps remind us of this is the biblical practice of fasting. It is good and right for us to fast, and let the natural hunger pains of our physical bodies remind us how we ought to crave spiritual communion with God through his word and in prayer. This fall, as a church, we're going to start up again our time of communal fasting and praying throughout the year. But don't wait for that to start. Take a day or a portion of this day coming week to miss a meal or a couple of meals. And as you start to feel hungry... Let that remind you of how you ought to hunger for God's word. And pray specifically that God would help you to find delight and nourishment in his word. In addition, we eat and we enjoy food together. May it be so with our Bibles. Don't only read and study on your own. Do it in the community of this church, of your family, the bodies where God has placed you. Picture eating a delicious bite of a new food and being excited to share it with your spouse or with your kids. My, my daughters are nodding at me because everything I try, I want them to try. May that be what we do with the word. In your personal reading, 
When you see something that brings joy and delight or a new insight, share it with others. That's the beauty of regular family worship. It gives you an opportunity to share with one another. Discuss it with one another when you're here on Sundays. You're not just here to hear from me. Share with one another what you have been learning from God's word. Finishing up with our illustration of food. Not only do we get enjoyment from the sweetness of our food, but when we learn of Christ in the scriptures, we get the true nourishment that he alone brings as the bread of life and the true living water. Do you ever feel like your spiritual accounts are empty? That spiritually you are ready to declare bankruptcy? Do you feel like you're starving in your relationship with God? Turn to his word. I want to share with you a quote from George Mueller. George Mueller lived in England in the 1800s and is well known for his life of service, having detailed records of helping to care for over 10,000 orphans in and around London. He is also well known for his rich and faithful prayer life that he documented in his journals. What was the fuel for Mueller's service and his prayer? You guessed it. God's word. It's recorded in his journals that in addition to all of the time that he spent caring for orphans and praying, he read through the Bible four times every year. He was budgeting and saving and planning and storing up for himself treasures from God's words. Like so many others that we have the rich example of in church history, he's what we could call a biblical billionaire. This is what Mueller had to say about the source of his spiritual vitality. The vigor of our spiritual life will be in exact proportion to the place held by the Bible in our life and thoughts. Let me read that again. The vigor of our spiritual life will be in exact proportion to the place held by the Bible in our life and thoughts. May we truly be satisfied by and delight in the word of God and hold it in the place that it deserves in our lives. As we finish looking at how God's word satisfies us, look at verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. We know that we can never perfectly keep God's law to earn our salvation. But oh, how we are spared from much heartache and trouble. And how great are the rewards in this life if we shape our lives around the truth of his word. Finally, as we continue to examine how the word declares the necessary knowledge of God, we see here in the text before us that the word of God is sufficient. It may seem to us like a downgrade to say that the word is sufficient when we've already said that it is superior and satisfying. But I didn't simply pick this word to fulfill my Baptist alliteration quota for my message. 
Webster's defines the word sufficient as enough to meet the needs of a situation. Enough to meet the needs of a situation. I chose this word sufficient because the word of God really does supply all that we need in our situation. What is our situation? What is our greatest need? Look with me at verse 12 and 13. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. We see here that David acknowledges that he is a sinner. We must acknowledge that we are sinners. That is our situation. We can't even fathom the depths of our own sins. They are hidden from us. They are presumptuous, it says. On our own, they have complete and total dominion over us. Our situation is even worse because we know that in our sin, we are separated from the holy and perfect God. God's law reveals to us his perfect standard of obedience. But in our sin, none of us can even come close to fulfilling the law. We are all guilty in our sin. How then can David say that he shall be blameless and innocent? God doesn't simply forgive some sins and sweep them under the rug. Absolutely not. Because we have his word, this word of God, this special revelation that he has given to us, we know that our only hope to be counted as blameless and innocent comes through the word become flesh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are only justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Yes, we marvel at the eternal power and divine nature of God seen in his creation around us. But because of what we know through this word, God is no longer distant and impersonal. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ if you do not know Christ Jesus as your personal Savior, and you still only see God as distant and impersonal, I urge you to submit your life to God through faith in Christ and to be saved by faith alone through grace alone. If you have any questions about that, I'd love to talk to you. Anybody else who's been up here today would love to talk to you after the service. If you are in Christ, remember what God has done for you. Give thanks that he has chosen to specifically and especially reveal himself to you through the gift of his word. Yes, praise God and glorify him for his glory that's displayed in creation. But even more, praise him for Christ and what he has done for you in Christ. As Addison reminded us last week from Psalm 103, because of God's saving love, we are his covenant 
people. We are not distant and far off. We are his people, and he is our God. Look back in your Bibles at the passage in Psalm 19. Look at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. That word God there is the only time it's used in this passage. It's simply the Hebrew word El, or the shorter form of the word Elohim. It's not even really a name of God, it's just a title, kind of the God. It's just the God is declared in creation. But once we get to verse 7, and we turn the corner from general revelation to the special revelation of God's word, the word used to refer to God changes. Look at it there. It switches to using the name Yahweh, or translated here in the ESV as Lord in all capital letters. That's what that means in your English translation in the Old Testament, where you see the word Lord in all capital letters. That's the translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. Yahweh is the name used with God's covenant people who are his through grace and redemption. Because we have this Bible, we don't just know about God through creation. But we know and are known by Yahweh. This point is emphasized in our final verse of Psalm 19. Look at me with verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock. And my Redeemer. How can our words and our meditations be acceptable in the sight of a holy and perfect God? Only if we become part of his covenant people through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can only ever be made acceptable through the work of Christ. But in this life we can and we must strive to align our words and our thoughts and our minds to God through reading, valuing, studying, meditating on, and delighting in the word of God. It is because of Christ revealed to us in this word that we are moved from being condemned in our sin under the holy God of creation to being loved and accepted by Yahweh. And with the psalmist we can say, O Lord, my rock, and my Redeemer. God is no longer distant and impersonal, but he is our Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we glorify you for your work in creation, but we are so thankful that you have not left us distant and far off, but that you have brought us near by the blood of Christ. We praise you for your sovereign plan worked to save us from our sins. We acknowledge that we are sinners and we are separated from you and that we are in need of Christ's righteousness. 
before a holy and perfect God. We thank you that we are your people, that we can call you our God, that you're no longer just the general God, but you are Yahweh, our covenant God who loves us and has brought us near to himself in Christ. It's in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.